Hey, don't we need to do the intro to Papa's podcast? Oh yeah, I forgot. Isn't that the boring one? No, that's the theology one. It's the boring theology podcast. <laughs> that's so stupid. Welcome to the Boring Theology Podcast, where we are digging our way through the Bible from a Reformed confessional perspective. I'm your host, Michael Esch, and today I have my favorite beautiful guest, (laughs) Kylie Esch. Hello. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm really excited because we just got our new microphone and our stands, and I feel like... What is it? Said we got it all situated here. I know. And we have like headphones. It's feeling like a real studio now. Getting fancy. <laughs> I just need to get out of like the, uh, <laughs> like actually build walls around <laughs> around this room so that it actually looks like a studio. Um, so how's everything going? It's going well. How are the you? The last time that we did a podcast together, we did... Family worship on family worship. It's been a little that was bit. a good one. Yeah, that that good one, one actually got a lot of hits yeah. on the podcast. It's like I put so much effort into that Bible timeline series, and then and then I say, "Oh, I have a guest, Kylie. Kylie's going to be on," and everyone's like, "Oh, I'm going to listen to that one." <laughs> and I'm well. like, "Oh, well, maybe I should just make you my current, <laughs> always podcast." Ben would get jealous though. I enjoy being an every once in a while guest. Yeah. (laughs) It is a lot of work to put one of these podcasts together. I feel like, I think our notes for today's podcast, are they're six pages long. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, normally my my podcast ones are about nine. Right. But um, yeah, so today, today we had over a course of about a month, I had a bunch of people like uh, write in, email, text um just saw me in mm-hmm. person and said hey this would be a cool topic for you to do yeah. on the podcast and so what i did was i collaborated with you mm-hmm. and we talked through all of the questions kind of weeded some of them out and then uh, we agreed i think do we have five questions um i, I think we five? have five questions that sounds right and so um there's a, a lot of content here yeah, there is <laughs> so, some of these questions i think Two of them are relatively easy to answer, and then other ones could be a series of podcasts. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I easy. Think so. And so... Well, like, when you do your series, and that's always cool, but I, I always enjoy a good question and answer. Right. Like, you know, just because there's things that people are thinking about that, I mean, you know, they want it specifically addressed, and so... Right. I mean, yeah. And I think, like, in today's podcast we're going to be addressing some of the issues that a lot of people actually have especially when you come at or when you hear about reformed confessional beliefs or calvinistic beliefs you have these types of questions yeah and so this will be fun to get kind of into those like um getting into and kind of weeding out like what is the reformed confessional response to this and i know i say on the podcast in the intro that this is a reformed confessional perspective and that's what it is throughout like everything but as we are working through this 
these questions, we're actually going to be looking at the Westminster Confession, mm-hmm. which is the Reformed Confession that me and you both adhere yeah. to, and this is the the confession that our church mm-hmm. adheres to. And so today we actually get to to get into the confession. We right. get into the scriptures, and we're going to be looking at how the confession kind of interacts with and helps explain all what the scriptures are saying. I think it's. I think a lot of people who don't interact with the confessions are mm-hmm. going to see and find yeah. that helpful yeah. and see why we, we like them so much. So um, let's just get on with the first question. Okay. So what's a uh, question? Is, just read the question and say who it was from. Okay. I don't care which order. Yeah. All right. This question was submitted by Lietta. And the question was, what is the difference between free will and predestination? There's no difference. There you go. Next question. <laughs> I don't think she'll be satisfied yeah. with the answer. <laughs> Nobody, there's, there's, yeah. No, I'm just kidding. So this is common when people hear the word like Calvin or Calvinist. Mm-hmm. They they think predestination. Well, I and think then, even just hearing the word predestination, people instantly panic. So it's like, well, it's those, not, like, I feel like it's not fair. Right. Because. That doctrine brings so much comfort and joy yeah. to a lot of our lives. Yeah. And yet most people in America hear the word predestination and they think oh, cheesy horror films. Yeah. yeah. Right? Uh-huh. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> like trying to... And, and even in those cheesy horror films, they're still trying to cheat their predestination. As if like even in those films, it's like this free will right. is... Like combating right. this predestination there were and like films like that, right? What were they? Final destination. Oh, is that what it was? Yes, Final destination. Yes. Like, oh, maybe no I'm matter how wrong. many times well, they cheated death, like listen. the logs were gonna fly off the truck and get them anyways, or however. You know, I never liked those oh. horror films. I was not. <laughs> I clearly didn't watch I them. I watched them. I'm pretty sure. Anyways, <laughs> so but that's kind yeah, of the yeah. same idea that like you were predestined to die at this time, and right. then like and then these people are trying to fight with their free will. Right. And, and that's really how I think Americans see, and especially in our culture, where we value free will mm-hmm. so much and we pit that against mm-hmm. um, predestination. And I also think that some people, a lot of people are shocked when I say that predestination is a Christian belief. It's right. not just Calvinist. Like John Calvin during the Reformation didn't come up with the word predestination. And even John Calvin's view of predestination um, can actually be tied back to St. Augustine mm-hmm. in the fourth century. Well, that word is so, in the Bible. <laughs> and then Augustine, you can see how Augustine got it from the Bible because Correct. the word predestination is actually in, is the, in Bible, the Bible, yes. which brings up a great point <laughs> why don't you read uh, let's just go through some of these yeah uh verses real quick that actually use the word predestination okay. um so romans 8 28 30 you want me to read it yeah okay and we know that for those who love god all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul sounding really Calvinist right now. He used predestined twice in one sentence. Oh. 
So, so here we have just a, a um, Paul's explaining part uh, part of the the gospel that that God has th- before the foundations of the world he he planned this out that as man sinned and fell into his sin that he was he was predestined that Christ would come and that he would sacrifice himself for a specific group of people that he was saying he says to be conformed to the they were predestined to be conformed to the image of his son and i think some people also they'll say who he foreknew he also predestined and sometimes they look at that and they say well god looked down the tunnel of time and he learned who was going to choose him mm-hmm. before they were born right. and then therefore he chose them right but do you know what the problem is with that it leaves it up to us well that's one thing but it also says that that god learned something mm-hmm. but we know that when we look at um throughout scripture we know that god is omniscient mm-hmm. that he is all knowing and that means that there wasn't a time where God learned something. Oh, yeah. That's right? True. So yeah. when we look at the word foreknew, mm-hmm. we're actually, this word is the same. Uh, it's a Greek word mm-hmm. because Romans was written in Greek. But um, it's the same concept that the Bible know, um, uses throughout the Old Testament when it talks about knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, it talks. It's about an intimate relationship type of knowledge. Mm-hmm. So you'll see like Adam knew his wife. And so you see there that they had an intimate relationship. Mm-hmm. And so we're saying here that that God foreknew, he has this knowledge of foreknowledge or or relationship knowledge of of being relational with somebody. Uh he also predestined. Mm-hmm. So he predestined this relationship to come about. And so let's go to the next one. Uh, the, let's see, Ephesians 1, 4 through 5? Yep. Okay. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Right. This is is kind of like, and I think we're going to see that this is a very common theme is that these all sound really similar because it's talking about how he chose us, um, other, other types of translations and, um, even other Bible verses will translate in different sections talking about this and they'll call Christians the elect. Mm -hmm. And I think that also gets labeled as a, a Calvinist term. Right. When really it's in the Bible that it talks about God electing or choosing or predestining mm-hmm. a group of people for himself. Well, I think the reason they seem to get confused, though, is that they think that, okay, if he's predestined this, then how do we have free will? Because it almost seems like right. it sounds like it the sounds end like goal it, is no, like, right. we didn't. Because when we think about predestined, we're thinking that there is a this all-powerful God mm-hmm. who plans out all things right. and because he plans out all things, then we automatically assume, well, that's just like a relationship between a robot and an engineer. It's almost like little puppets down here on Earth. Right. Yeah. And, but what happens is that you, 
you basically just humanized God because you just made God's relationship with his creation to be like a human in his creation. But God is on an infinitely larger scale than us. Mm -hmm. He is magnificent. He's glorious. He is something to be worshiped. Mm -hmm. Um, When he creates something and he plans things out, that becomes a more complicated process because because as we'll see in free will, we are responsible for our actions. And the Bible talks about us having a will and deciding those, which we'll get to in just a second. But when we're talking through these things, it, this is clearly indicating that God had a plan mm-hmm. and that he sees it through, mm-hmm. that he makes sure it happens and that nothing can go against that plan, mm-hmm. like go outside of it. Uh, there's not an atom in creation that is rotating or moving in a direction that God didn't want it to move and d- direct it. And so, let's go. Um, let's go down to the next one. Acts, Acts thirteen forty-eight. Yeah. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So this is just part of the narrative of Acts. And I think the point here is it doesn't say the word um, predestination. It doesn't say the word chose. It doesn't say elect. But it uses another word and says appointed. appointed. So it says it says that they were uh, the one. It says as many as were appointed to eternal life. Like that God appointed these people to be saved. He sends their Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit regenerates these people or, or in another term in John chapter three, it talks about um, we have to be born of the spirit. Mm-hmm. And so the Holy Spirit comes and appoints people or baptizes them in the Holy Spirit and they become saved and they regenerate and they put their faith in Christ. That is, that is how they're appointed, elected, chosen, predestined. Mm-hmm. So let's do the last one that we're going to use for this. All right. Acts 2.23. Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So I, we put this one in here because a lot of times when we're thinking about predestination or there's like a that God predestined or chose us, that we always think about it as God and us, an engineer and this robot, uh, with people that are against this type of view. Um, but the Bible says that that Jesus was predestined to die on the cross. That it says that, uh, that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge. So... Jesus didn't look down the tunnel of time and see what was going to happen to him. It was already planned. It was already planned. He had foreknowledge. He had a relationship with the future of knowing what was going to happen because it was part of part of his plan right. that he had. And so when we talk about predestined, we're not just talking about how God predestines certain people and not other people. We're also talking that God is so sovereign that he is predestining all things. He all things. Now, when we look at, we normally would describe that as decree, mm-hmm. that God decrees things. But that's also he that, that, that he's sovereign over all things and he plans out all things. 
predestination is usually viewed at as for individuals for salvation. Mm-hmm. So, but we also wanted to talk about how the Bible talks about a will, right? And that we have a will, um, and that we can choose our paths. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can choose to do righteousness, and we can choose to do wickedness. Um, so let's look at Proverbs nineteen twenty one. Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So here it says, like, you, many are the plans in the man, mind of man. So, like, you have your own plans. Mm-hmm. Like, you have your own plans. That yeah. means like, you have your own will mm-hmm. for the way things are going to go. Now, Proverbs is quick to clarify that it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So, like, you do have your will, but God has a stronger will. Um, the, the confessions say that God is most free. So like, if you want to say that you have a free will, which I'm, I'm actually okay with saying that mm-hmm. from a, from a reformed confessional belief, I I'm okay with somebody saying they have a free will depending on how they define that. But God is most free. But God is most free. God's will is most free. So you have a free will to choose and you are responsible for your own sin but it's within it's within God's plan mm-hmm. that 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 your will can never triumph over God's so let's look at Genesis 50:20 this is a great example of what I'm talking about as for you you meant evil against me but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today so we talked about this on the bible timeline series when we talked about Egypt Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery and then lied about him being killed to their father. And then when they come to Egypt, he saves them. He redeems them um, and gives them a sort of like shadowed version of what Christ is going to do, um, salvation. And, And when his brothers come and they're repenting, he says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So these men had a will and they chose evil and they're responsible for their evil. But this was within God's plan. It doesn't say that you meant evil against me and God used it for good. It says that God meant it for good. Mm. That I never this, thought of it like that. I, I yeah. So... Because it says you meant and God meant. Mm-hmm. We understand when yeah. m- when we mean to do evil towards somebody, right? Right, right? We understand when it means that like we meant to steal that or when we meant to hurt somebody else. Well, this says that God meant it for good. Right. So that means like God in his creatorness, <laughs> that's clearly not <laughs> <Yeah>. a word. <laughs> and so, but in his in his sovereignty that he's able to plan out all of these things and they work according to his plan and that he, he turned around and what they meant for um, sending Joseph into slavery, God meant it for Joseph to be the redeemer and to foreshadow Christ. Mm -hmm. He's like, this is what, this is what my son is going to do. You're going to send him into slavery. You're going to abuse him, and he he's going to save you. And so um, he meant it for good so that they could be kept alive. And so let's go down to uh, John chapter 1, 
verse uh, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So I just use this verse because it sounds it sounds like I'm pushing the predestination mm-hmm. here. But I mean, this is we're just reading the Bible. Right. We haven't even gotten to a confession. Right. But. But here it differentiates between all of these things um, that those who believed were born. It was because they were born of God. They weren't born of blood. They weren't born of the will of the flesh and they weren't born of the will of man. I, and I don't think the Bible's saying that those are just figments of your imagination. Those are real things. Blood is real. The, your desire of the flesh towards sin is real. Uh, the will of man is real. Mm-hmm. Like we really do have a will to desire things, but until God sends his Holy spirit or appoints us mm-hmm. and redeems us, our will is always going to be to reject God. We might do good things. Um, as in like you have an atheist who feeds a homeless person, but that atheist who's feeding the homeless person, while I would agree that that is a good work, mm-hmm. that is a righteous thing to do. They are not doing it for God's glory. Uh, the The shorter catechism that we teach our mm-hmm. kids, what is the chief purpose of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Right. And so what we have here is that you have somebody who's doing something and it's good. It's yeah. a good thing. They're loving their neighbor and they're doing that because they're made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. And God has not given them over to total, to, like as evil as they could be in their depravity even though they, they are totally depraved because they they do not glorify god at all mm-hmm. they're not giving any of that glory to god they're keeping that glory for themselves or for idols or people right. or for popularity or for whatever they're the thing is it's not god it's for created things not for the creator and so What, but I think what's important about this verse is that you're you're showing that like when you are saved, it's by God. Right. It's not by any other thing. It's not by any created thing. It's not by blood. It's not by your flesh. It's not by your own will. Those are all created things, all subjugated to God's sovereignty, and so. So I, I say all those things to say that we do have a will. Like a will does exist. A will exists inside of God's sovereignty. So uh, the last one. Uh, the last verse on this is John seven seventeen. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. So uh, again, that's just re-emphasizing that right. there is that man does have a will. And God redeems that will too. That's something that's part of our sanctification. Our will changes when we get saved. We, Our will goes from not desiring God to desiring God. Um, and then let's look in the confessions. So Westminster Confession, chapter 3, on the eternal decrees. We're going to read section 6 and section 8. I'm not going to really give too much commentary. I think it's pretty clear. I'm going to let this kind of sum up this section, and then we'll jump into the... The next question. So if you want to read. read. Yep. 
All right, section six. As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so hath he, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by his Spirit, working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith until unto salvation. Neither are there any other redeemed by Christ, effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. And then section 8. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care, that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may, from the certainty of their effectual vocation, be assured of their eternal election. So shall the doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. So I'm actually going to say something. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Just one short little thing, especially about that last section, is that um, predestin- the, the confession says that predestination should be handled with special care. It, it should be treated like a high mystery. We shouldn't arrogantly, and, and this is going towards the people that don't struggle with predestination, that, that we are predestined should humble us. That, that nothing in and of ourselves saved us. And so that when other people are struggling with that doctrine, we should be handling that doctrine with care and remembering that there's a lot of mystery to it. And not only that, is that that doctrine shouldn't be bringing about confusion and anger and frustration. That doctrine should be bringing about humility, reverence, praise, admiration of God. Like that, that's what the confession says about predestination. And I really like that. That's how it ends that chapter on it. Right. No, that's good. So what's the next section or the next um, Next question? question? All right. This is submitted by Reginald. Do the different eschatological (laughs) views change the way we live our lives? So I would say. Do you want to define that term so they know what we're talking yes. about? Yes. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you. This is why I have a guest. So um, eschatological means it's it's talking about the end times or when Christ returns. So the different views of either how Christ will return or when he will return or what will happen after he returns and the time frames of all of those things. Does that change the way? We live our lives. So among Christendom, we have different views of eschatology, um, which is like you have the dispensational view, which is common among independent fundamental Baptist churches. And then you have uh, the most common among like historical churches would be a premillennial view and a type of postmillennial view. Um I think that most of church history, the post-millennial view was really what we would call an all-millennial view, 
which means that the difference between a premillennial and a and a what would be an all millennial would be like whether they believed that the thousand year reign of Christ is that a literal thousand years or is that a figurative thir- thousand years? And so the people historically that were called postmillennial viewed that as a uh, figurative, and then uh, the premillennials normally viewed that as a literal thousand years. So Christ would return, there would be a thousand years of peace, and then there would be judgment after that time. And then an all-millennial view would be say that Christ is reigning on his throne today, and that when he returns, there will be judgment. So right before Christ returns, the Antichrist will rise up for a short amount of time, and then Christ will return, and... Then out the end time, then there will be judgment. So Christ will return. We will be raptured up into the sky. But as He's coming down, it's it's just one event. Whereas dispensationalist, if anybody is familiar with the Left Behind series, you have that Christ returns. He pulls up some. Uh, he pulls up the Christians, and then there's uh, Jews that are restored during this time. They set up the sacrificial system again, and then Christ returns again. And the, some some of them believe that he returns again, and then some of them then say then he returns a final time to to judge the world. And some some of them don't believe in that that middle mm-hmm. return. They just believe in the end. Um, so it's like a two time return instead of three the the classical premillennial and postmillennial or all mill um views only believe in one return of christ they don't believe in like multiple returns dispensational is different in that and dispensational theology is more modern which view is the like the whole left behind series that we grew up with what that would be the dispensational that would view. Be the dispensational yeah. when all the crazy stuff happens. Yeah. Uh, reformed views among the reformed, I think like at our church, and we go to the uh, an Orthodox Presbyterian church, um, it is allowed for our ministers and elders to have diverse views mm-hmm. on yeah. eschatology, but they can't they actually aren't allowed to have a dispensational view. Because a dispensational view um, contradicts covenant theology, mm-hmm. which I was, we're probably going to, I'm going to have a podcast on That's covenant theology yeah. to explain it because I, it's really helpful in understanding the biblical narrative. Right. But anyways, that's so getting does, on to another topic because Reginald think, asked the question yeah. of, does these different views affect the way that we live our mm-hmm. lives? And I think on a surface level... And I think on a charitable uh, answer, I would say largely as Christians, no, that that there is not one of these groups that glorifies God more Mm -hmm. or that um, obeys, that that one of these views draws Christians to more obedience. Um, But I do think on a deeper level that you're going to see these different groups emphasize different things so for instance a dispensationalist thinks that the world's just going it is ba- <laughs> the the dispensational believes that the that the world is going to hell mm-hmm. like that it's it's going to get 
really bad. And before it gets really bad, Christians are going to be brought up. And so that's going to affect your political views. That's going to affect how you, you are looking forward to multiple generations. You, you might not care about passing things on. Now I'm not saying that there's not dispensationals that, but I'm saying that there's a tendency to think along those lines of like, well, Christ is going to come at any time. Right. And I'm not going to have to deal with the terror that's coming after I leave. Right. Because I'm just going to be raptured up and I'm, I'm gone. Right. Um, so, but that might also lead them to be maybe more urgent on evangelism. That's what I was going to say. Maybe like, you, right. have, you don't know when. So the time is now if, if there's any time. Right. At all, so. And now I don't think any of the other groups don't think that Christ could right. return at any Im- imminent time or that they lack in evangelism. But I think maybe dispensationalists might might emphasize that a little bit more. Right. And then for a po- uh, so for a so dispensationalists, I would even put pre-mills in that category with dispensationalists on okay. their re- how they're going to say these things because basically the world's going to get bad until Christ returns and then it's it's going to get better. Now, a post-millennial view, like a modern post-millennial view, which is different than an all-millennial view, mm-hmm. not very different, but a little right. bit different, they kind of believe that that Christians are going to usher in, with, of course, with the power of the Holy Spirit, is going to usher in a Christian age or a golden age where the, the world is being reformed, is being changed, and everything's becoming Christian. The music's becoming Christian. The entertainment's becoming Christian. The politics that are becoming Christian. Um, the that our communities and our values are becoming Christian. Not that everybody is Christian, but that on a whole, we're going to see this golden age of peace because Christian morality is going to reign supreme. So you're going to see among those people, they're going to be more pushing in a political place or in a entertainment place trying to kind of take over in those arenas because they would say that Christ reigns over those. Now, I don't think among any of the other eschatological views that they believe that Christ doesn't reign over those things. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's not to say that a dispensationalist doesn't make a movie because Left Behind series made right. lots of movies, <laughs> right? So... But you're going to see them get post millennials are more way more likely to get involved in politics, and then you have all millennials who believe like that that the end times could be really like we could get more Christian, we could get less Christian. We don't we don't think that the Bible actually clarifies that. So you're going to see mixed there, and I think you're going to see all millennials be more. Uh, I don't want to like, I, I think you're going to see a more balanced response from them. So you're going to see them be involved in politics, but not as much as a post-millennial. And you're going to see them, and you're going to see them helping, like, you're going to see them evangelize, but maybe not as urgent as a dispensationalist. Mm-hmm. And they're going to have a little bit more hope than the dispensationalist for the here and the now, because they believe in a already, not yet type of belief that like Christ is reigning right now. And so 
we're not anticipating his reign. We're anticipating just his return. Right. Okay. So I think, I, I hope that answers his question. And if it doesn't, if, if you want to clarify, you can always send something else in. Or if that a- answered or brought about more questions, you can right. send those in. Just so everybody knows, the last episode of the Bible Timeline series, I'll actually be explaining all of those eschatological views just just so everybody knows that's going to be like the bulk of that podcast so anyways so third question all right this is from will oh will always has interesting questions yeah, i see that here um <laughs> he asked who was kane's wife we don't know it's not mentioned next question <laughs> no but seriously the bible doesn't say anything about it so i think that we can conclude that it was a close relative it I'm was sure probably there a lot of people to pick from at that point. It's probably I mean, like his sister right. or like a niece. Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't really m- many options. I mean, God made Adam and Eve, and then from them all came all right. creation. We know that from there's a lot of our theology is built on that doctrine. Right. Um, that when Adam and Eve sinned, that they they imputed that sin onto their seed. And that doctrine is so important and it plays out in the Gospels, which we're going to talk about in the next Bible timeline series about uh, Christ and being incarnate. But Christ had to be born of a virgin Mm -hmm. so that Adam's sin wasn't imputed to him. He was miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit. So he... He didn't have that sinful nature. He had human nature, 100% human nature, and he was 100% God, but he didn't have a sinful nature. So he didn't desire, his flesh didn't desire sin. And so, um, so it's really important to have the doctrine that it was Adam and Eve, and then from there, all of the descendants of mankind. Mm-hmm. So so clearly, Cain married somebody right. there because he has descendants. Right. So, all right, next question. I'm convinced you want me to read these because they all contain hard words, but it's fine. Okay, this question is also Will. Oh, Will's Will's always Thanks, with these Will. questions. Um, <laughs> who is Mel- Melchizedek? Melchizedek, yes. yes. So Melchizedek was the king of Salem, which is, if you translate the Hebrew, Salem means peace. Um, and he, the book of Hebrews explains that um, Melchizedek was a king of Salem. He was also a priest who brought bread and wine to Abraham. Um, the Bible says in Genesis that he was the he was priest of the Most High God, uh, and that he blessed. Um, that when he saw Abraham, Abraham was still called Abram at the time. He said, blessed be Abram to the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the most high God who hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand, and he gave him tithe for all. So he being Abram gave um, Melchizedek a tithe. And um, we also see in Psalms, 110 verse 4 the lord has sworn and will not change his mind 
you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And if you read through that chapter of Psalms, actually, if you read through or sing most of the Psalms, you're going to see Christ in them. That There's a lot of Psalms that prophesy of Christ. A lot of prophecies in the book of Psalms. And if you listen to the last podcast about prophets, you know that David was a prophet. And him writing these, he was prophesying of Christ. And so when he says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, he's talking about Christ. Christ is the priest after the order of Melchizedek. Gotcha. Um, a significant portion of the book of Hebrews is dedicated to explaining Christ's priesthood and explaining how he is a priest for us, that he advocates for us um, to God, that he is our uh, mediator. Some some people, uh, Roman Roman Catholics, mm-hmm. believe that, uh, that we should pray to saints mm-hmm. that have died. Uh, and they believe that those saints mediate for them to, to God. They think that they need another mediator besides Christ. And so, and we can we could get yeah. into that in a different section. But the point of that is is that that's actually Christ's position, and that's what Hebrews makes that out to be that He is the only mediator between us and God, and that He is after this order of Melchizedek. That He's not a priest from the line of Levi. He's not a Levite. He's not doing ceremonial um, temple worship. That's that's not what Christ. That Christ is not a priest over that. He is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so the, the Levitical priests were foreshadowing the need for a better priesthood. And you can see that as you read through the Old Testament. And we, we've clearly seen that through the Bible timeline series. Mm-hmm. That, that like that priesthood was flawed and, f- right. and failed. Um. So, uh, some people, this is the reason that we'll ask the question, is because some people debate whether Melchizedek was actually a Christophany, which means that it was Christ appearing in the mm-hmm. Old Testament, okay. or whether he was just a type or shadow okay. of, like, like David right. was a type and shadow of Christ to come, who was a king and a prophet. Right. And then... Christ is better because he's king, prophet, priest. You, you see yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Like, so, and and he's also perfect. He's right. also God. So whether so or like not he was like a literal person. Or, he, well, no, no, Melchizedek was, was a literal, literal right. person, right. Right? right? And so, like, that's clearly okay. so. Like, a, he was king of a specific okay. location. Now, I think, now, my personal belief and a lot of reformed belief, uh-huh. is isn't, isn't, confessed in our confessions but i think that a lot of reformed especially um martin luther he's obviously lutheran but Mm -hmm. protestant um made the case that because he was king of a specific location in a specific time that doesn't really fall into the category of christophany where christ would appear for a moment in time and then he was gone right right but that this person was actually a king of a specific location. Right. Okay. And so that would make him more of a type. And so. Okay. But I think that that's. Yeah. Yeah. So next question. 
All right, this is from Jeremy. What do you think about the presence of Christ in the Eucharist? What is the Eucharist? <laughs> Sounds like a card game. <laughs> like Euchre? <laughs> That's not I Eucharist. never remember how to play that game yeah. every time. <laughs> <laughs> um, Eucharist is, is another another word for communion. Um, I actually asked our pastor about this because I think like a lot of Catholics use the word um, Eucharist. So I asked him, I said, is there significance to people using the term Eucharist for the Lord's Supper? Is it an equivalent term or does it mean something different? He said, I'm sure the answer is yes and no. Yes, there is significance because each term has become an official term in certain churches. No, in that the meaning of the term points to the same thing. Eucharist is a Greek is a Greek word, and it comes from Jesus' words at the Last Supper. After supper, he gave thanks. The Lord's Supper points to the whole event. So, they're not equivalent in meaning, but the point but point to the same place. Okay. So, so technically, if you were using the word Eucharist, that, that's a fine substitute. Okay. But you also have to know that that ha- comes with a context. Okay. So we did. Me and Ben did a series on Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Black lives Black Lives Matter means something. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, there's also a meaning behind that meaning is that there's a political meaning behind it too, and so. Where one person could say Black Lives Matter and mean one thing, they could say that and mean another thing. Okay. And I think that's the same thing here when you're using the word Eucharist or you're using Lord's Supper or you're using communion. You're kind of emphasizing what your church's doctrine is on it. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. So um, I don't, we're not going to go through all of the different doctrines. Um, I think the way that Jeremy is. Uh, phrasing this question, I'm thinking he's got more of a, he's coming at it from a, how is the reform view of the Lord's Supper different from, uh, and then the way he's saying the presence of Christ in the communion, I'm thinking he's either coming from this as studying Lutheranism or he's studying Roman Catholics because those two would be close to talking about They'd be in the realm of talking about the presence of Christ in communion with reform people okay. as separated from like the Zwingli view or the predominantly Baptist view is that it, that communion is just a remembrance or I forget what the other word is that they use for that, but it's, it's basically symbolic that, that, that is what it's. It's like something that they're remembering happened, um, but that that Christ is not present there. Um, Thus, the, I'm not going to get right. And and Jeremy didn't ask me what the different views were, but our confession actually gets into those different views. If you know them, you'll pick them up. But our confession is just going to explain what we believe on it. So. Um, the Westminster chapter 29, um, there, I have here, there's a lot. So let's see where we are on time for Okay. 
So let's just read through this. We'll make a couple different comments, um, but let's just get through chapter 9, 29. You want me to read all of this? Yes, this is the... Well, we can... We can, can we like You alternate? can read one okay. part and I'll read right. another part. All right. Uh, okay, so the first point. Our Lord Jesus, in the night wherein he was betrayed, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood, called the Lord's Supper, to be observed in his church unto the end of the world. For the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself in his death, the sealing all benefits thereof unto true believers, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe unto him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other as members of his mystical body. So from the reform perspective, we are acknowledging that on some level we're being spiritually nourished by spiritually eating and drinking the body and blood of Christ, but that there is a level of symbolism and remembrance, but we're also acknowledging that it is like there's mystery to it. Just like when we were talking about um, predestination, there is mystery to this doctrine and that we're okay with that mystery, but we're also going to clarify where it's not mysterious, where scripture makes it very clear. It's not, that part's not mysterious, right? So, um, the next section is in this sacrament, Christ is not offered up to his father, nor in, nor any real sacrifice made at all for remissions of sins of the quick or dead, but only a commemoration of that one offering up of himself by himself upon the cross once for all in a spiritual oblation of all possible praise unto God for the same. So that the popish sacrifice of the mass, as they call it, is most abominable, injurious to Christ's one only sacrifice, the alone propitiation for all the sins of his elect. So our confession is going really bold on this one and is saying that the bread and the wine are not physically God's body and that they are not re-sacrificing. Mm-hmm. Our pastors are not priests that are getting up and doing Levitical whole, like holy ceremonies to make a sacrifice. Well, We're not reinstituting because done. Christ sacrificed once and for right. all. So from that perspective, this communion that we do every week is a commemoration mm-hmm. yet there is spiritual nourishment going on there so we're right. not denying we're not denying a spiritual nourishment but we're we are denying aggressively that it is not a sacrifice because a sacrifice right. would be a heretical statement right. towards or, or even so far as a blasphemous statement to saying that christ's sacrifice on the cross wasn't enough right. that he needs to be sacrificed every week over and over and over again because that sacrifice wasn't enough. Right. So. Next section. Yep. Okay. Uh, private. Oh, no, I'm sorry. The Lord three? Jesus. Okay. The Lord Jesus hath in this ordinance appointed his ministers to declare his word of institution to the people to pray and bless the elements of bread and wine and thereby to set them apart from a common 
to a holy use, and to take and break the bread, to take the cup, and they communicating also themselves, to give both to the communicants, but to none who are not then present in the congregation. So, <laughs> that's also aggressive stance, especially during these COVID times, that yes, it is. communion is supposed to be done with the communion of the saints. That the church is, we've been talking about this in Sunday yes, school yes. class, that the church is the assembly of God's people. It's God's people coming together. And that God, the communion should be taken together with the saints. That that is the way that it was designed. When God instituted the Lord's Supper, it was to be done right. together. Right. It was around a table with his disciples. And so... I mean, there's been a lot of different things going on, I feel like, with the past year. And right. that doesn't seem to fit into that. Oh, there's there's a lot we could get into that. But let's move on. Yeah. All right, you want to read number four? Yeah. Private masses or receiving the sacrament by a priest or any other alone, as likewise the denial of the cup to the people, worshiping the elements, the lifting them up or carrying them about for adoration, and the reserving of them for any pretended... Religious use are all contrary to the nature of the sacrament and to the institution of Christ. This gets back to that the bread and the wine are not God's body and blood. Because if they were, then we should be doing those things. Mm-hmm. If they, if that bread and that wine is God's body, we should fall down and worship them. Yeah. But if they're created things and not the creator himself, then it's idolatry. Mm-hmm. And we have to be really careful and with that. And not only that, it's I think that it's something that we should be bold mm-hmm. on talking about. Yeah, I agree. Right. So um, the outward and then section five, the outward elements in the sacrament duly set apart to the uses ordained by Christ have such relation to him crucified as that truly yet sacramentally only they are sometimes called by the name of the things they represent to wit, the body and blood of Christ abet in substance and nature. They still remain truly and only bread and wine as they were before. So again, we're emphasizing that the the that it is okay to refer to them as the body and blood of Christ because mm-hmm. that's what Christ does. But they are truly they don't physically change or or become His body, and they are representative in that way. Right. Um, even though there is a spiritual component to it, but in the physical world. Right. Um, okay. All right. Number six. Um, let's actually wanna... go down to section seven, because okay. this actually addresses the Lutheran view. Oh, yeah, so far, fine. we've done just the Roman yeah. Catholic. But, yeah. So seven. Yep. Worthy receivers outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this sacrament do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not, yet not carnally and corporally, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all benefits of his death. The body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally in with, in with or under the bread and wine, yet as really but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. 
So this is saying that this is getting into the how we are spiritually taking on Christ's body and blood. Mm -hmm. And that is by faith alone. And you can't do that without faith. Um, In in section eight, it's actually going to say who's unworthy of taking communion. So those who either have not been um, admitted as members of the church, those that have been excommunicated from the church, and those that have... Uh, that are not members of a church. Um, and also those that are unrepentant in in gross sin. I, the, the confession is going to get into that a little bit more specific. But I would, I think that we've really explained that. If you are interested in a little bit more information, you're looking at Westminster Confessions Chapter 29, you also can look at the Westminster Larger Catechism at uh, question 170 and in the Shorter Catechism, uh, question 96. Let's move on to the last question that was asked by Jonathan, which was... What is the issue with the Enneagram? That's your question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so... I, so what, tell me. Okay, so, so I like to keep up with what is like popular and relevant yeah. purely because I know that as humans, Christian or not, I mean, we get sucked into all sorts of stuff and I like to know what people are getting themselves into because if, you know, they're telling me about something and I know nothing about it, even if I know it's not something I'm interested in getting into, I like to be able to know like what I'm dealing with. So this is something I've looked into a bit just because it is very popular right now. Um, So the Enneagram is basically known today as like a personality test. Okay. Um, If you're familiar at all with like Myers-Briggs personality test was really big for a while. Yeah. Didn't Um, they, that went out, that kind of, got less and less popular i know yeah. some corporate companies yeah, still I mean, use I, it. I worked a job where we actually were required to take the myers-briggs personality test it's you know based off of um research in psychology and right. all that um i think that they modernly that the reason that that started fading out was that when they tried to replicate mm-hmm. those original tests yeah that they found that they couldn't replicate them. Right. And so they kind of deemed that mere uh, Myers-Briggs as being like pseudoscience. Right. And so is this kind of replacing that? Um, it is similar in it's that similar. you receive basically personality traits based off of, you know, an assessment, a quiz that you take. Yeah. Um, is it more science-based or uh, <laughs> um, more pseudo stuff? So the issue... That I have. And I mean, like I said, I participated in the Myers-Briggs. It was required by my job at one point. We actually were paired with people that we were supposed to work well with. They had this grand, you know, idea of we're all going to work best together if we follow, you know, whatever. And I I didn't really ever take it super seriously. I found it slightly interesting. But at the same time, I think you know when you can work well with someone or not. And like, I mean, you know, whatever. So with the Enneagram... The problems that I have, I kind of, there was a lot of stuff and I tried to just narrow down a few things that I wanted to bring up. I can always get people more information 
if they're right. legitimately like into this and they really want to know more of why right. I'm saying this is not something Christians should be involved in. But the two things that stuck out to me the most um, was that number one, it stems from new age and occult origins. And that sounds scary. Actually, the more well, occult sounds scary. No, New Age sounds like crystal stuff. No, listen, there's some really strange stuff <laughs> that this comes from. And honestly, like the more I kept reading, there were like some more really freaky things. Really? I have like a few things just out of like, this is just interesting. So I'm going to share it. But like, you should still not be a part of it, even though it sounds strange and interesting. In some okay. Ways. Um, and then the other thing I just want to mention that really bothered me is that a lot of people christians and churches are using the enneagram like some churches are actually preaching on this so i've seen that (laughs) and like i've i've aggressively attacked that right and i know that i i don't know that much about enneagrams right but i do know that that they're not rooted in scripture well that's so from the pulpit yeah it should be scripture alone i don't think so. it should be preached from the pulpit but i right. i also do not think christians should be involved in it at all because it goes completely against the scriptural understanding of human identity which is found in christ and how we gain wisdom through christ and right. it is i mean one of the main people who he's not from the origin or he's not from the origins of creating it well, but he's let's, somebody before you get into like further down the line right. where did this originate you said occultic right. so things. okay so how did that do you want me to explain a little bit about what it is first before i talk about like exactly talk about maybe like the origins and okay. then how what they developed from there right. and then um, maybe who's involved with it now right. like that okay kind of order. so if you don't know what it is like i said you take a quiz and it basically gives you personality uh, they use a number system to... Where did it originate, though? So some of the people who were teachers who were part of originating slash teaching and passing down this, there was somebody from Bolivia. Um, there was some people over in Europe, like Italy and other surrounding countries. All of it is actually... Um, what would you consider that? Eastern? countries yeah um and so what like a group of these people got together yeah so it's kind of funny because the way that psychologists now are saying like this is legit stuff is because some of the beliefs actually are derived from like aristotle which he did not create this obviously but a lot of the way he viewed wisdom and Mm self-awareness was from him and they followed him and some of his like predecessors um and and what they believed with that so this group that got together they were part of a cult most of this derives from people involved so in what cults. was occultic about their origins okay so like what was what was something occultic okay. that they so, were doing the nine personality traits that okay. are like your options basically you get Um, From the results, they are actually based off of the nine divine forms of self. Oh, (laughs) so, okay, personality obviously is a form of yourself. Right. But basically, the people that this originated from and the cults they were involved in, they taught that man's natural essence 
can be perf- in perfect unity with the divine. Oh, okay. And that all of this is like a self-obtained divinity. Like, it's not... Like a covenant of works? <laughs> yeah, it okay. is. Um, it's kind of funny because the... So, you, like I said, you get personality traits given to you from this test, but they're actually stemmed from the seven deadly sins. Oh, really? But then they added two more, so nine. Okay. And um, it's basically kind of like finds your sinfulness and weakness and is like, how can you better yourself? Okay. Yourself. Right. And... um, Whereas a Christian would be looking at it as, I better myself by looking and turning to Christ. Right, right. And Christ crucified. Exactly. And then I'm I'm redeemed and walking out my sanctification from that. And I look to the law. Right. And not just like, Oh, I struggle with this one or two cents, but like I'm looking at holistically, I'm looking at all of the different ways that would go on. Okay. So some of the originators, Mm -hmm. um, I did not write down all of their names. If that's super important to somebody, I can get it, but they were all like foreign and very hard to pronounce. And I would just sit here butchering, trying to say their names rather than talking. I shouldn't have made you say them then. (laughs) I've already said plenty of hard things. (laughs) Um, So just a couple examples of some of the people that this originated from. Um, so there was an early teacher who you're, I feel like you're going to get a kick out of this. He was heavily involved in psychedelic drugs. There you go. He's probably some really Joe reliable. Rogan. Um, Got some and, Joe Rogan there. Um, shamanism. <laughs> okay. And he claimed that he received some of this self-awareness information from a higher entity named Metatron. Whoa. Time out. <laughs> not Megatron. Not Megatron. Metatron. Like it Transformers. Be? It sounds a lot like maybe he was doing the drugs and watching Transformers. I don't know, but literally he he was. Uh, that sounds like <laughs> I know it. Megatron. I told you, it's strange. I'm... So what is it? What is it actually? Meta. Meta. Metatron. Like Metatron. Metatron. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that, du- is... that dude was totally watching Transformers. I'm telling you. I don't I, know what time right. frame this was, but. I, you know, I didn't write down the year and I should have, but something that's interesting is that a lot of these teachers and leaders in this, they tell everybody that this is like from ancient times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there was actually an interview that I can find if someone doesn't believe me and wants it, but um, they actually admitted to lying about that and saying that they told everybody it was this ancient thing because people are really drawn to like, ooh, I'm a part of this like old ancient culture they actually i i feel like they said it was like the 60s or something that this actually like became enneagram or what we're calling enneagram now um so there's another leader uh he's one of the originators and he stated that the nine types so the nine personality traits um came from automatic writing. If you don't know what automatic writing is... Megatron, <laughs> Autobots. Um, listen. This sounds really like Transformers. No, this actually is scary. Listen. So okay. automatic writing is it's the process of emptying your mind, which I know a lot of people who do like the psychedelic stuff. Okay. I feel like there's, that's part of that. Uh, now, time out. We There's a lot of Christians that like to listen, do that. I know. 
like blank out their mind, try to listen to whatever like meditation type thing, type of like still small, still voice no, that comes through. So it is the process of emptying your mind and allowing a spirit. <laughs> okay. Demon. I don't, I mean, I don't Right. A spirit to speak through you. And as you write stuff down on paper, yeah. that's like the spirit. So you're just like it. writing what's coming to your mind. Right. That, you know, to be completely honest, I, I feel like I've seen, isn't that Jesus calling book written the same way? Oh, I didn't Where know that. she's like, she just like kind of stills let, her whatever. mind yeah. and lets, she right. has God thoughts. Yeah. And she like I just mean, writes it out. Me, but anyways, you're clearing anyways. your mind and letting like a spirit take over, I right. like don't view that as anything other than demon. Well, like that I just directly goes against <laughs> the law of God. Yeah, because God's law is summarized by love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your, your soul, mind. all your soul, all mind. your mind. Yeah. And yeah. so, like, we're supposed to love God with all of our mind. Right. We're not supposed to empty ourselves of right. our mind to not do things. Anyways, um, anyway, I'm getting so, off track. No, but, yeah. but, I mean, it's, it's a, a serious point, thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and some of the other research I did, a lot of philosophers stated that this was a combination of many religions being put together. They named Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Islam, and certain Greek religion yeah. and they're saying that this is like a combination like they're obtaining all this from all they're kind of like syncretizing i guess all the different yeah. like what um, they like out of kind of like a religion of all the cults the thing is all the cults. All of i mean teachers, like uh, all a cart right all the cults yeah but all of okay. these teachers were involved in some tor- some sort of cult okay again we are told not to meddle in that kind of thing. I mean, right. <laughs> That's specifically what, like, when God says that in like Deuteronomy 29 29, he says, like, what he had revealed to man is for the sons of man, mm-hmm. but what God has kept secret is for mm-hmm. God, right? And right before that, it's a warning passage against divination, right? And it sounds kind of like this sounds a lot. I mean, yeah. The modern day popular person who is really pushing this, um, if anyone's heard of Richard Rohr, he is a very popular American writer and he has written on this topic. I think the second American gospel movie like really went in on him and like what he believed. Right. Um, He does write about the Enneagram, a lot of new age. Most of his writing is new age. Um, But he, he says the point of the Enneagram is to gain wisdom. But here's the thing. So there are actually a lot of Christians who are listening to some things that he has written Mm -hmm. and saying, we're going to do this in a neutral way. One of my favorite things that, who was it? Jeff Durbin. There's no neutrality. There is no neutrality. That is my favorite. Like, I will never forget that. Because to me, that clicked like, you're either glorifying God or you're not. You know where he got that from? Where? Christ. Well, okay. And he said, obviously, yeah. yeah. He said because he said you can't serve two masters. Well, so like you're right, either right, yeah. going to see the way the world from you, this master, or you're going right. to see the way of the world from that master. Right. You can't serve both. So like you can't be neutral. Right. And and that's what like so I did a little bit of research on Richard War because the name sounded familiar. I couldn't remember exactly. I forgot that he in the American Gospel was brought up. Right. But um. It's funny that Christians are using some of his writings and tools because he openly rejects Christ. So, what? Who does again? Richard Rohr. 
So why are we right using that in church? Isn't he a universalist? Um, I know I he's he... a pantheist. Okay, but I don't know. Is that the right word? Pantheist. Yeah, that he believes that, that God world... is in all. Th- yeah, things? he believes like that the world is God. Yes. Okay. I'm not sure. Like I didn't. I didn't. Like go dig super, into super him. deep because okay. like literally there's so I much information. I think that that movie does though. I'm pretty sure it's just been a bit since I've seen it. Um, but just yeah, no, notes. I've seen I've seen like Christian pastors reading yeah. Richard Rohr before. Yeah, and that's why. I, so just I don't know. To me, that's like a huge red flag. Like I know people always say like, well, it might have originated from this. We're not using it like that. You know what Theratize. I think of when Christians say stuff like that? They're like when they say. I'm a Christian. Right. I believe in the Bible, right. but I'm using this worldly right. thing right. and kind of going to syncretize it into Christianity. Well, first off, that doesn't. The Bible rejects that notion. Right. We're not allowed to syncretize anything with God's right. word. That it should be God's word alone. Right. That that commands our right. word. We don't syncretize things right. into it. But more importantly. Uh, the Bible gives multiple scenarios where people tried to do things for mm-hmm. good intentions, right. I guess you could say. Right. Like, they're not good intentions right. because they're going directly against God's will and his word. Right. But they say they're doing it for a good reason. They're trying to redeem it for God, right? So right. The, fir- the, the best example I can think of is Saul. Mm-hmm. He prays to God. God doesn't answer him. Right. Right. And God says in his law that Saul had, he says, what I've revealed to man is for man. Right. And what, what I haven't is for is for God. And so Saul's not content. He's not satisfied right. with what God, he's not content with God's silence. Right. So then he goes to a witch mm-hmm. to, to raise up the dead right. to get an answer. Right. And so like, who does he go to? He... He goes to this witch and asks that a prophet of God mm-hmm. would be come back to life. Right. Samuel, that he would bring God, he would use the divination that mm-hmm. is forbidden for good. Right. Right? He's trying to do that. He's trying to syncretize divination and redeem it into, into right. the Christian life. Right. right. And yet it directly goes against God's law. So he's... He's breaking God's law. Right. And because of that, God condemns him to death the next day. Mm-hmm. And so I just think like there's a lot of warnings there. Yeah. That like we shouldn't be messing right. with divination. Right. We shouldn't be messing with witchcraft. Right. We shouldn't be messing with demonic activities right. or the fruits. Okay, I right. just I think of it like that, like you had these men that were interacting with demons, mm-hmm. and then you're going to take the fruit from that, right. and you're going to eat that, and you think it's good? Right. That really sounds like a serpent's telling you to eat right. that fruit. Well, that's what I found interesting about, because I didn't know that the personality traits or the strengths or whatever is mm-hmm. considered was based off of those seven deadly sins, because it's basically like whatever that sin is. The personality trait is like whatever's supposed to combat that. It's just again right. taking bad fruit and trying to like, I, right? It's and, just right. It's a backwards way of looking at that. Um, now, what got me 
very interested in. If you want to hear a really good podcast mm-hmm. um, about more of why this is not okay for Christians and a little more info than what I wanted to share here just for sake of not being too long, um, is I love Sheologians podcast. Hey, 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 now. Listen, I love not rec- No, we are not <laughs> recommending other podcasts on well, my podcast. They did a podcast. I think it was in... Oh, and you're just going to keep going yes, with it? Because this is really good. I, I couldn't cover everything, but they're what got me looking into more of why and what about this whole situation. Um, I believe it's in their 2019 podcasts, and uh, the podcast name is Girl, What's Your Number? Ooh. Um, because people really do, like... I was introduced to somebody once, and they were like, "Hi, I'm so and so. I'm a four. What are you?" And I was like, "I, I don't. I'm a Christian." Like I was like, I didn't know, like I just like you know I didn't know what to say. It's kind of like, what is it? The horoscope stuff. Like if you were to introduce someone and be like, "Hi, I'm a. I don't even know what they are. Scorpio or is that what? I don't know. Scorpio? I don't follow. <laughs> I I have no idea. I might be one of those well, things. Listen, I don't know. Scorpio. I just I'm just saying it was like such a strange. No, introduction. no, no, no. I'm a Megatron. Oh, my gosh. Metatron. <laughs> um, anyways, their podcast was very enlightening on the topic and right. the dangers. Um, and then if somebody wants to do, like, research but wants to, like, research via, like, somebody who's already done a lot of research for you. Sure. Her name's Marsha Montenegro, I believe, if I'm saying that How do you spell the last name? M-O-N-T-E-N. E G R O. She's a former New Ager okay. who is no longer. Oh, I feel like I've listened to her on Apologia. She she, bas- she probably was, um, okay. but she basically did all the research and kind of combine. If you look her up, she's got a lot of good information. If you need more right. info, but um, yeah. So, so uh, of course, I was just joking about <laughs> you uh, not recommending another podcast. <laughs> They're really great. I recommend we, them constantly. They always like hit the spot and make me just right think about. No, I really life. like <laughs> I really like summer and um. What's the? Oh, now you're gonna put me on the spot. Right. Um. um oh goodness, I should and, know this. Uh, I only know summer's name. Anyways, no, I know, so, but it's not a hard name. So, anyways, I, me and Kylie talked about this before we got, uh, we started recording, and I said, if anybody ever is listening to my podcast, I would always hope to point them to my resources mm-hmm. and to better people than me, mm-hmm. because there are plenty of people that are better than me. Joy. There's better than jo- Summer. And I know. Joy. I was like, it's an easy name. I, know. I should know this. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So that there's always like the there's better resources right. than than this. This is just yeah. the culmination of things right. that I've learned, and I hope that in right. passing through people coming to boring theology for whatever time they're going to be right. here for. Maybe it's just for season one of the Bible timeline right. series, or season two, or maybe they're with me till the end. But um, that I hope that I can point them yeah. towards more discipleship and better. Um, better learning on the Bible. So Sheologians, Apologia are both really good yes. resources. I actually really enjoyed the podcast that they put out called Cultish. Oh, yeah. That and was... I bet Cultish has an episode on Enneagrams I'm sure too. They do. They do a lot of very popular cultic like, right. I mean, new age stuff. Yeah, they, yeah. Their stuff's always very interesting. So um, thank you 
for hanging in there with us and uh, digging into these questions. I've really enjoyed it. This is by far the longest podcast Sorry. that we've done so far. Um, <laughs> breaking records, Kylie. You had a lot of reading. Yeah, we did have a lot of reading. And we actually skipped through some of our readings. So, um, But if you liked this podcast, give us a like on social media, sharing the podcast, you cannot imagine that your one share gains us uh, can double my, our listening um, because just a couple people sharing um, episodes has, I mean, it's gone from, I've seen episodes go from like 10 views to 80 views just from a few people sharing it. So that does make a big difference from us um, making uh, a five-star review on Apple and just engaging with the social medias, either liking, commenting, um, and even just sending us messages and encouragement for continuing the work uh, that we are doing here at Boring Theology. Next time, uh, we are talking with Ben about disagreements uh, among Christians. I have another podcast with Kylie scheduled for how we practice Christian Sabbath. Mm -hmm. And then we also have the uh, Bible Timeline series on Jesus. So until next time, God bless. Oh, thank you.